All right, go ahead, open up. We're going to be continuing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. If you did not get, uh, if you have your journal with you that you got last week, go ahead and hold it up. Good. Lots of you have it. If you were not here last week and did not get that journal, we have a handful of extras over at the guest services table. These are gifts from us to you. Uh, it's a way for you to be able to take notes during this whole sermon series and, uh, and track what you're learning. So make sure you get that before you go. This is for you. Bring it with you on a Sunday. Bring it with you to your small groups throughout the week. This is for you to learn, okay, and for you to, to be able to look back in nine months and say, God, what was this journey in 1 Corinthians all about, and what did you form in me? That's one of the things we want to do better at as a church is the hard work of theological reflection, and that means going back and looking at what has God done uh, in my life. Now, let me pray, and then we're going to dig into 1 Corinthians. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a chance to dig into your word. Uh, we never do this lightly. We always do this with the utmost seriousness as, as your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, able to pierce through bone and marrow, through soul and spirit, dividing the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, says scripture. And so God, I pray that your word right now would have a way with us, that we would leave here changed to do that difficult work, Holy Spirit, of convicting us where we have been weak, and drawing us closer to you, forming God, godliness in us. May we be changed. In Jesus' holy name, amen. In uh, the late 1940s, there was a revival that broke out on uh, the outskirts of Scotland in a pr place called, I believe you pronounce it, the Hebrides, uh, the, the Hebrides Islands. Now, uh, if you don't know what revival is, revival is one of those remarkable moments in human history. It happens all across human history for the last 2,000 years where uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people begin placing their faith in Jesus all at the same time. Sometimes these are accompanied by an incredible outworkings of the Holy Spirit, like miracles and visual displays of the power of God. Other times, people literally, the Holy Spirit moves into a place. There, during the Wesleyan revivals, for example, there were accounts of hundreds of people just laying in trance-like states as you'd walk down the streets during the Wesleyan revivals because the Holy Spirit was just moving in a powerful way. And thousands upon thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. Now, if that sounds unbelievable, you need to read Christian history because this is what the Holy Spirit has done all through history. Well, one of those revivals happened in 1949, between 1949 and 1952 on the Hebrides Islands, uh, the Isle of Lewis. Now, what happened was uh, it began with two little old ladies. Uh, if you could throw this picture up for me. I want you to, I don't know how well you'll see this. A little difficult to see. Two sisters. They were in their late 70s, I believe, early 80s. Uh, one of them was blind. One of them was a hunchback. She was not able to stand up and was almost bent over parallel to the ground. These two little old ladies believed in the power of prayer and believed that God was about to do something remarkable. So they called their pastor, pastor of this little local congregation in the Hebrides. You imagine just, you know, a tenth of what we have in this room. They called their pastor and they said, Pastor, we believe God's gonna do something remarkable and we've been praying for it. They said, we have one question for you. And what do you think their one question of their pastor was? You don't have to shout it. Just imagine your head. What, what do you think it was? They want to know one thing. Pastor, are you a man of prayer? That was it. That was it. Nothing else was on their radar. 
They, they, they weren't interested in how great of a preacher he was. They weren't interested in how good of a leader he was. They weren't interested in what, uh, you know, what, what uh, councils he was sat on and what conferences he spoke at. They had one question for this pastor. You gotta know, are you a man of prayer? And he was a man of prayer. That's the man in the middle of that picture. And the three of them began to pray. And through the burning fires of their prayers, revival began to sweep through the Hebrides Islands over a period of three years. Thousands upon thousands of people placing their faith in Jesus Christ. How did it start? In the most unlikely place. Two sisters in their late 70s, early 80s. One hunched over, the other blind. God so often uses the weak to shame the strong, doesn't he? He uses the things that we think are foolish in this world to shame the wise. One of the questions we're going to be asking us today is, as Christians, do we believe that? Do we live as if that principle is true? Are we the kind of Christians that actually believe that at any given moment, two little old ladies can spark revival? Or are we the kind of Christians that depend on the flash, depend on the skills, depend on the talents that we have in the room? What kind of Christians are we? Do we take God at his word that he's gonna use the weak to shame the strong? Or do we not really believe it and we're trying to get as strong as we can to do great things for God? One of those two is gonna be true of us by the end of this day. We continue today in our series on 1 Corinthians. And the theme I'm going to be preaching from is uh, the, the idea of power dynamics in the kingdom of God. Where does power come from? How do we utilize power? What do we, what do we think about power as it plays out in the kingdom of God? Last week, uh, we, we had this great conversation in the greeting of 1 Corinthians. Again, we're going first, verse by verse through this handwritten letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And last week, he rooted us in our identity. If you remember that, before he gets into any of the issues he's going to be dealing with in this early New Testament church, he first greets them and he reminds them of who they are. Two big words that we highlighted last week from the opening verses. Number one, he said, you are sanctified. That means God has changed you from who you, are, who you were to who you are. And number two, you are a saint. You are a holy one. And, and rooting us in that place was his way of saying, look, I'm about to dig into some really hard stuff that's gonna shake you and rattle you a little bit. I'm gonna call you out on some sin that's taking place in your church family. But in order to do that, I need to root you firmly in who you are. And at the end of that passage, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he said, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, remember a letter I got sent to him by a woman named Chloe, by Chloe's people, that there's quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, that was Peter, the apostle Peter, or I follow Christ. So he addresses one of the first things, and what is one of the first things taking place in the church, one of the first problems? Politics. Each, there were divisions and factions growing where each group said, you know, I'm, I follow this guy. I follow this guy. Well, who were these people? Well, what did they think? Apollos, he was well known for his, for his preaching. He was a man of great, great speaking skills. And so there was a group that was like, oh, that's where power is. Power is in what Apollos is doing. Look at the way he preaches. That's, that's, that's who I follow is Apollos. Other people said, now you see what Apollos is doing? He's a church planter. He's planting churches all over the Mediterranean. That's where the power is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Paul guy, or I'm an Apollos guy. 
Another, and then there was this other group that said, no, 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 I'm a Peter guy. Oh, where, where's real power to be found? Who is Peter? Peter is one of the best friends of Jesus. He was alive with Jesus, he walked with Jesus. Just the fact that Peter had meals with Jesus, <laughs> he's gotta have the power, I wanna be with him. I'm a, I'm a Peter guy. And there were these camps growing, these cliques growing in the church. And, and that problem flows with us through our whole section today. He's gonna be talking about power dynamics in the church. And the church is saying, I follow this person, I follow this person, and Paul breaks it down. He says, look, if you're a Christian, we gotta get where power comes from real straight because it doesn't come from where you think it comes from, the way you're behaving with these types of divisions in the church. Here's kind of the main sense of what I think he's digging at. If you have one sentence to kind of capture this, the way of the cross is the antithesis of the way of the world. The way of the cross is the antithesis that's the opposite of the way of the world. I'm gonna show you that in three major kind of buckets, all right? So first bucket is this, the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive. Remember, the way of the cross is the antithesis of the way of the world. How? Well, first way, well, the way of the cross is offensive. Verses 18 through 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter one. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, and then he quotes from an Old Testament passage, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Listen to this. For Jews demand signs, Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pause right there. Verse 18, he begins by calling out two different camps of people. Now, now we like to divide the world into all different camps. Many of our world philosophies, how we're think, seeing the world, that have come through the ages over thousands of years of human history, are attempting to categorize the world into different groups of people and, and, and get them into camps that think the same way. Well, well, Paul says there's actually two primary camps. If you're going to be a Christian, the way you need to see reality is through the lens of God. And there are two camps of people. There are those, verse 18, who are perishing. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then there are those who are being saved. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, in our world where we have adopted this postmodernistic ideal, this idea that all ideas are welcome, there's no wrong, there's no right, everyone's welcome at the table. God forbid we say with clarity that there are those who are perishing and that there are those who are being saved. <clears throat> the Bible says with fundamental clarity, there are two camps. And the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now what do we mean by those who are perishing? Let's get very clear with our language here. He's talking about eternal destiny. He's saying at the end of the day, there's going to be a great judgment. Jesus talked about this more than any other person in all of scripture. There's gonna be a great judgment that takes place where God separates the chaff from the wheat, the goat from the sheep. That's Jesus' language. And on that judgment day, those who have received the free gift of grace, forgiveness in Jesus Christ, 
will be counted worthy of eternal salvation in Christ and will be placed on his right-hand side the position of heavenly, heavenly acceptance and heavenly inheritance. And those who have refused to accept Jesus Christ by their sinful actions, those who have received, refused to believe in Jesus Christ and the free gift of grace will be placed on his left and experience eternal, eternal punishment for their, uh, their rebellion against God. He says there are two camps, and what those two camps of people do with the word of the cross is what gives us fundamental clarity on those two camps. Now, what's the word of the cross? The word of the cross is the message of Jesus Christ. Look, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now, those who are perishing, when they hear the, the message of the gospel, believe it to be utmost foolishness. Now, we're going to break that apart in length, in clarity, throughout the rest of this sermon. But let's be very clear. What is the message of the cross? What's the word of the cross? Why are you here? Many churches confuse what's the actual, when you boil this all down, what are we doing? What, what are we trying to get after? What's the actual message? Many churches actually have forgotten to preach the actual message of the cross. And so the message of the cross is very simple. Any child who's trained just lightly can teach this. The message of the cross is that every single human being has fallen short of God's standard for us. We've broken his commands. We've broken it in heart. We've broken it in action. That's called sin. We've all fallen short. And God is a good and loving and just judge who does not let sin just go unpunished, who does not just let brokenness have no consequences. It is a good and praiseworthy thing that we have a just judge for a God because if God was not just, that means there would never be justice for the evils in this world. If God was not just, there would never be consequences for the great evils that everyone has participated in, from the small things to the great things. We have a just God, which means there is eternal justice. And we have a very loving God. A loving God who sees us in our sinful condition, who sees what's happened, that every one of us has fallen short, every one of us has participated in sin by our own free determination, but he sent Jesus Christ to the cross for us. And what Jesus did on the cross is he hung on the cross and he, he took the penalty for our sin on his own shoulders. The consequences of sin is death, says scripture. And God took death, Jesus took death on his own shoulders. He said, I'll take the place of your church. I'll bear the cross so that those who place their faith in me will not have to pay the consequences on their own. He shed his blood that we could have forgiveness. This is the message of the cross, that there is forgiveness available in the name of Jesus only. For under no other name can a person be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is salvation in no other name. That's the word of the cross. And every Christian who hears that, immediately, they, they say in their hearts exactly what verse 18 says. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The Christian hears that and they say, that's the source of my life. The cross is where I bet it all. The cross is where I live every day at the foot of the cross. Yes, Jesus in my place. But those who are perishing hear that and they say, how foolish. What, what a silly message to proclaim as a source of your life. Exactly what verse 18 says. It's folly to those who are perishing. Now he quotes Isaiah 29. Why does he do that? Isaiah 29 reads, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will, I will thwart. Why does he go back to the Old Testament to make his point? Well, it's because what he's about to say, he's trying to root in, in how God has always behaved. He's saying, by quoting the Old Testament, he's saying this is not something new. God didn't just suddenly start using the weak to shame the strong and using the, 
the, the foolish in the world or shame the wise of the world. He's been doing that since Adam and Eve. This is the character of God. Think of the Israelites of the Old Testament, who Isaiah was, was speaking to. How did, how did King David come to rule over the greatest superpower on the planet at the time? Was it because of David's skills? Was it because he was some incredible leader? No, he was a shepherd. When he began his kingdom, he was surrounded by all the outcasts of society, those who had been kind of thrown out of society. But yet, in in the midst of that, God anointed him, and and the reason that God anointed David was not because of David's own power, not because of David's own strength, but because of God's election. And then he put him in a position of authority and said, I will work through your weakness. That's how Israel was birthed. This is always how God has worked. He's always chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He goes on in the rest of these verses, and he he draws this this dichotomy. He he says, look, let's work through this idea, and he compares it to two different people groups, the Jews and the Greeks of his day, two categories of people that would have been very well known to an early church in Corinth at the time. For us, they might represent the religious person, the Jews, and the secular person, the Greeks. Very straight comparison between those two things. Verses 22 and 23. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Stumbling block. That word literally means a scandal. That's the Greek word where we get our English equivalent scandal. The cross is scandalous to the Jews of his day. Why? Why is the cross scandalous? Scandalous. What's, what's the cross? Remember, in, Jesus's, in, in Paul's day when he was writing, they could look over to Rome in most of the major cities and see crosses in the ground where crooks, thieves, and murderers were continuing to be crucified live in front of live audiences. So when they read this, they could look out the window and see, see a guy hanging and breathing his last breath on a cross over there and say, I saw that guy. I'm the guy that put him there because he was robbing my house. That's a thief on the cross over there. And so when you come to the Jews of the day and you say, the king of the universe was crucified on a cross. Like a thief? Like, Like a lowlife? Like a murderer? The king of the universe? What did the Jews believe was going to happen? When they talk about their Messiah, who was written about all through the Old Testament, they missed the passages that spoke of him being a suffering servant. They didn't see it. Very few of them were able to pinpoint it. What they saw and what they believed was that their Messiah, when he came, he was going to be riding on a white war horse, not a donkey. He was going to march into Jerusalem and establish his kingdom, not come and wash feet. He was going to build an empire with military might, not a church of persecuted saints. And so the Jews, when you come to them in the, in the first century and you say, look at what true religion is. Look at what God is after. See the cross, the death sentence, which is the cross. Your Messiah on a crucifix. They say, I don't think so. It was a scandal to them. This is scandalous that you would dare suggest that God in any way could enter human form, let alone die a murderer's death. It's a stumbling block. Folly to the Greeks. Well, it's also followed to the Greeks. The Greeks were the secular-minded people of the first century. So Greek history, they were the great philosophers of the day. Think of people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These were the, the, great, the great minds of that time period that developed a lot of the, 
the logic that we continue to use today when we think of logic, that they, they wrote some of the great ethical teachings, not biblical teachings, but they laid some of the groundwork for humanist thought on ethical teachings. Where does virtue come from? Right? So when you come to them and you present a message that's this, all of your great debate, go back for a second, all they spent time doing all day, these Greek philosophers, was debating wisdom. They would go in public places, and their heroes were those who could speak with such eloquence of things that were so challenging for the regular layperson to understand. You had to have the best education to be in a place and really understand what they were talking about, like a lot of philosophy you read today, okay? (laughs) When you come and you say, I'm going to tell you what real truth is. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, and he died for you on a cross, and you can have salvation And the good life, the life that's really life, is living in obedience to God, repenting of your sin and just trusting in the simplicity of a crucified Messiah in your behalf. The greatest minds in the world came around and said, that's elementary, (laughs) that's foolish. Haven't you read Socrates? We're way past that at this point. And the Apostle Paul was saying, it's not more complicated than that. It's the cross. It's always been the cross. Don't make this more complicated. It's the cross. It's foolish to the secular minds of his day. Now, to the religious mind and the secular mind of Paul's day, it was a stumbling block and it was foolishness. And to the religious minds and the secular minds of our day, the word of the cross is foolishness and a stumbling block. Why? Let me call out maybe three reasons why. Number one, the cross exposes the extent of human pride and is therefore an attack on our modern, authentic self. Okay, let me say that again. The cross exposes the extent of human pride and is therefore an attack on the modern, authentic self. What is the main philosophy that we are pushing today across all of culture? Be your most authentic self. This is at the heartbeat of the the transgender movement that's going right now, right? What's the heart, and we're gonna get more to that as we go through 1 Corinthians, but what's the heartbeat of that? Inside you is this kind of uh, amoebic version of yourself that is the truest form of you. And, and what you have to do if you wanna live the good life, the true life, is you have to find your inner sense of self. No matter what anybody else says, it's deep down in there, and you can break every category, break everything that anyone ever said you had to be, just get to your inner self. Now, who is at the center of the universe underneath that philosophy? Me, I, it's, it's pride. It's the extent of human pride. And that's the modern philosophy. It's saying I am the center of the universe and the most important thing for me to live the life that is truly life is to find the perfect best version of me and the place I gotta look for that is deep inside of me. Don't listen to what anyone says. And the cross comes along. And the cross says, if you look deep inside your heart, what you will find is that it was necessary for a Messiah to go to a cross underneath the judgment of God for your sin. That's what's in there. Deep down inside is not the most authentic self. It's so sinful that we don't even, we will never fully grasp how rotted and decaying the human heart is outside of God. You wanna go deep inside, you will not find virtue, you will find vices that you do not even begin to understand are in there. 
And the cross demands that you root pride out and that you run to a Messiah who takes your place on the cross. See, it's an attack on our modern philosophy of, of pride. It's an attack on the humanistic tendencies that, that, that Socrates and Plato were pushing on because it demands that you see yourself for who you really are, sinners before a holy God. Number two, the cross reveals our utter, de- our, our utter dependence on forces outside of ourselves for salvation and is therefore an attack on the philosophy of might makes right. Might makes right. If that's a new phrase for you, that one's trickled down to us from way back in Paul's day. Might makes right. What's that? That's the idea that, that who are the people who, who get the good life, right? This got really pushed in the days of Darwin, by the way. Darwinian theory, what, what's Darwinian theory and natural selection built off of? Strong eat weak. Who survives? Who creates more children? Whose families go further? It's the ones who attack the weakest. So it got put on, on high, fast pace through the Darwinian revolution that took place under his day. And so and might makes right says, you want the good life? Go get it. You want the life that is truly life? Fight for it, tooth and nail. Do whatever you have to do to get yourself to the top of the ladder. That one sounds pretty familiar, right? It's all through culture. And the cross comes along and it says, no, no, no. The good life is the way of Christ who washed feet. The good life is the way of Christ who, who often was found weeping, who, who was, who was uh, outcast at times. He identified very often with the, the lowest people in society. He befriended tax collectors and prostitutes to bring the love of God to them he was crucified on a cross. He was killed. He was, he was maligned. He was falsely accused. You want to know the good life? Follow him. The more your life looks like Jesus, the more you're finding the good life. How many of you, your life is looking more and more like Jesus? How many of you, your life actually is looking more like might makes right? You see that? We, we've so Americanized the gospel. It, it's so, part of my job in 1 Corinthians is to take America out of the gospel. <laughs> and it, it's, it's gonna be really hard. And one of the best ways you can do that, honestly, is to, is to get on a, go visit some of our missionaries. Get overseas and see the gospel flourishing in huts, in, in people that, that don't have a tenth of the, the wisdom and skills and, and tools that you have, but to see, the, to see power to see the power of the gospel at work. One of the best things you can do for your faith. And so it's an attack on might makes right. Number three, the cross declares, this is interesting, the cross declares that true religion is an objective fact of history and not a mystical experience. Now this is interesting. Most of the modern day religion that, that is circulating in Chicago is mysticism. It's a, it's a repackaged form of mysticism, Eastern mysticism, that says that, re, that religion, spirituality, is not really tangible. It's not historic. It doesn't take place in real space and time, but it happens in this like other dimension. And, and the goal of spirituality is to transcend, right? That's the word that's used, is to transcend reality and 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 get your mind into this energy place of another realm. Right now, if you ask the younger generation, many who are in, that, in, in this room today, the number one thing that people are using to get to that other realm is drugs, hallucinogenic drugs. It's, it's plowing through our city right now. Why? Because it's the philosophy. 
The philosophy is that true religion is entering into another realm beyond what we experience as reality. But the cross attacks that. Why? Because the cross took place in human history where an actual man bled actual blood in an actual point in time. You cannot spiritualize the cross. It's a physical event in time and place of which all human history revolves around. It's, It's not happening in some other realm. He bled and died, and the cross demands that we declare that true religion is physical as well as spiritual, that it actually happens in the real world, not just in another realm somewhere. You see that? It's an attack. And and the Jews of our day, what I mean by that is a religiously minded person of our day, the secular minded person of our day sees this and they think stumbling block. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's not bloody. It's not physical. It's foolishness to the world around us. The cross is offensive. I heard a pastor a while ago say, uh, he, he was talking to other pastors and he said, look, pastor, if you're not offending your flock regularly, you're not doing your job. Okay, so for those of you that are offended by me regularly, I'm doing my job, okay? (laughs) The cross is offensive. Number two, the cross is a paradox. The cross is a paradox. Verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, right, if ever you see so that, underline it, circle it, that's your purpose statement for what he's been saying, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now look, remember, who's Paul? Before he is the apostle that we know in history, he was a pastor. He was a man who had founded the Corinthian church. He's now writing to them from a distance, and he's he's thinking of the people he knows, right? He's he's thinking in his mind, he's got Marvin and Nora, and he's like, oh, I love them. I love Marvin. I love Stephen and Rosa. Oh, I love Bernard. Oh, I I love this guy. Right? And he's thinking, he's writing, he goes, okay, how can, what's God, I know their stories. I walked with them, I I saw them get baptized, I love these folks, right? And he says, now now I know you, Pastor Paul says. He goes, you are the proof of my point. None of you came from, from the type of skills that would be needed to build a church that would take over the world. None of, none of you had that level of skill set that, that you were noble or, or you, none of you had, you were, you know who you were and what your story was. And I like to think of my own testimony, okay? I like to imagine, now this is not how God works, just so you know. This is a bit of a cartoon version of how this played out, but bear with me. I imagine God back in 2003 saying, all right, angels, get around with me. We've got to figure out who's going to be the pastor of Park South Loop in 20 years. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, that's my guy right there. See him? That's my guy. Angels, go get him. And one of the angels looks over at God and says, uh, hey, God, he's drunk. And uh, he's making a pretty big fool of himself. Can you see that? 
And God says, yeah, that's my guy. And then the angel comes back to him and says, oh, God, God, we just went down there. And uh, so he was running around the suburb streets of Chicago with his buddies, and uh, they were causing all kinds of mischief. They were tipping porta potties over, and uh, they were throwing water balloons at houses in the middle of the night. Uh, God, I think he's pretty reckless. And God says, it's my guy right there. <laughs> the angels go down, they come back up, and they say, all right, so God, we did this uh, personality profile, and uh, look, so he's not really an academically-minded guy. Uh, that's not like his thing, and also he's, he's a little insecure. We, we're, we're watching the way that he operates with his buddies, and he's actually kind of wildly insecure right now. And God says, go get him. God rewrites stories, doesn't he? God, God chooses the least likely people you could ever imagine to do the extraordinary, to be part of his kingdom. That's the extraordinary. God chooses the weak and the foolish things of this world. Now look, think of you. <laughs> I was sharing stories last night with some people about, about some mischief that you guys were getting into before the Lord got a hold of you. God, and God got a hold of you. And he changed your story. He, you got baptized. You, 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 you put your faith in Jesus and trusted in God and stopped, and stopped chasing after the foolish things of the world. And when he did that, he changed your heart from who you were and he gave you a new foundation. And then he's building on that foundation. He's making you into something new so that you can go out and be a part of kingdom building so that you can make disciples who will disciple the nations. You're after the greatest work the world has ever known. It's the work of the church. And he didn't pick you to be on the team because you were the best. He picked you because you were foolish and not wise, and then he worked through you. And why did he do it that way? So that no one can boast. So that nobody can get up here and say, this is how it got done. This is how the church goes forward. Look at what I accomplished. Nobody can do that in the church. Doesn't matter how many things God does through you. The more God begins to do through you, if you're a Christian, the more you'll begin to fade into the background and just say, I don't get it. Because <laughs> it should not be working this way, God. I know who I was and I know who I am so that no one can boast in the presence of God. Now we get this wrong all the time. We, we like to talk about this, but we import the ways of the world and the paradox of the kingdom. The paradox of the kingdom is he builds, he, he shames the strong through the weak. He, he shames the wise through the foolish. But then it, it, we get to the church and we start looking for the strong. We start looking for the best. And the two little old ladies that I had up there, they'd never make the leadership team. They'd never make it. They just wouldn't. If I, were to, if I were to ask you to pick teams, right? I just felt like a little kid a few weeks ago. We were at the pastor's retreat. We played kickball, and it started with two captains picking teams and all of us sitting on a, on a ledge going like, oh, I hope I'm not the last guy picked, right? Because no one wants to be the last guy picked, but that's kind of what we do, and we, we think, who's gonna lead this stuff? All right, let's see. Who's got the skills, right? He uses the weak to shame the strong. No one picks the little old ladies, but that's to our shame. It's to our shame. Because the real power, the furnace that builds the church is in the weak 
and foolish so that no one can boast in the presence of God. Big heads tend to get in the way real quick. See, Brennan Manning, he wrote this wonderful book called Abba's Child. Abba's Child. He, he, he says it this way. He says, instead of entering into the way of weakness, that's the way of the cross, we try to use God to become something powerful. Twice over, we neglect our Redeemer. We neglect him in our self-accomplishment, in our, in our attempt to overcome our weaknesses with strengths. We also neglect him because we don't believe we need him where we're powerful. We only need him where we're failing or still poor. In this sense, operating from our strength is practicing atheism. So, so what he's getting after here is that if you want to major in godliness, the, the primary work the reformers were constantly getting after, the primary work was learning humility and detaching self, uh, self-grandiose thoughts from yourself. They called it self-emptying, continuing to go lower to understand the fullness of God. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 30, because of him, of Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and, re- and redemption. The city mindset brings into us all sorts of achievement and power playing and working that we just drag it into the church and God is constantly inviting us. Look to different places than what the city says to look to. The modern Christian has almost no place for weakness. Weakness is something to be overcome to become strong rather than something to master us so that we would draw closer to Christ. What, what doesn't this mean? Here's what this doesn't mean. I am not teaching today that Christians are doormats who should be run over in society. I actually believe very much the opposite of that, right? Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents. That's cunning. Cunning as serpents and innocent as doves. I am not saying that there is not a place in society for Christians to step boldly and powerfully and to wield power properly. Why? We need to build the kingdom of God. So we need, we need pastors, we need governors, we need presidents, we need bosses, we need principals, we need teachers, we need managers of departments. We, 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 need, we need Christians to think Christianly in all the places of power in our society. It's not that we don't know, it's not that we're not okay with holding power. And you will hear from me, go, get those positions. Why? So we can transform society. But when you are in that position, we do not hold power or think of power or are motivated by power the way that a non-believer is. It's fundamentally flipped. And when you're in that position, you will be tempted by the devil to think exactly the way the world does. You will be tempted at every position to think you got there, to think this is what more can you achieve, what more money can you get. You will be tempted to keep thinking, look how good I am. They report to me, not I wash their feet. What if our presidents washed people's feet? What if our department heads washed people's feet? Feet, multiple plurals there. Washed people's feet. What if principals so loved their teachers that they were constantly serving them, lifting them up, less of themselves, more of their teachers. Do you see the Christian mindset shows itself in weakness, moving to the background in order that others can flourish? And here's the crazy thing about it. The kingdom gets built in power when you, when you pursue it that way, like Christ. It, it, it works. 2,000 years of church history, we're the strongest force on the planet for a reason. The way of the cross works. Rome fell. Greece fell. Persia fell. 
Babylon fell. They all fall over time. Kingdom of Christ, alive and well, and expanding like never before in all the places you wouldn't think. Why? Because it's true power. It's true power. We give up the ways of the world in order to pursue the way of Christ. Number three, the power of the cross. This flows right into it. Chapter two, verses one to five. And I, Paul, now he points to himself, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's the crazy thing about Paul. He was one of the brightest intellectuals of his day. He was the Stephen Hawking of the first century. He studied under Gamaliel. He was sent by the greatest Jewish minds, which were the greatest minds on the planet of his day, as a leader to go crush opposing philosophies. That was Paul. He was brilliant. But when he came, he did not step into his place of teaching and of church planting out of his brilliance. He came out of a place of simplicity and proclaiming the gospel and in service and therefore in power. The Holy Spirit was working wonders and powers all around him. His ministry was not built on his aptitude. It was built on his abiding in Christ. Here's where we get to. You want to walk in the fullness of everything I'm saying right now. It cannot be taped on. You're either abiding in Jesus or you're taping it on. And if you try to tape it on, this will never, never work. You want, to be a, a, you, you want to step in and be a part of our children's ministry and see every child on the outside of those walls come to know Jesus? Every one of them, 100%. You want to see revival on that half of the building? Let me ask it again. Do you want to see revival on that half of the building? Please, Lord, please, our children, get them young. Get them when they're babies. You want to see it? You know where it starts? Each of you abiding in Jesus, treasuring him, going to the foot of the cross, loving him so that when you walk in here and you serve over there, what are they getting? They're not getting how good are you with kids. That's, that's not what's going to change their hearts. They're not getting you're the most playful person or you know your children's Bible the best or you're the person who can figure out an activity on the quickest turn of a dime. That's not what's going to save them. What's going to save them is you have been at the foot of the cross every morning, Sunday through, the rest of the week, and you are now stepping in here like Christ to wash feet. Do you see that? The power of God moves when you abide in Christ. Two things to take away from this. Number one, every single one of us is sinful. We bring all this baggage into us, but God gets a hold of us and he changes us from who we were to who we're becoming. What that means is you are not who you once were anymore. When you hear me say that true power is abiding in Christ, that is accessible to every one of you and is what every Christian ought to be fighting for. It is not just some spiritual elite that can have a, a meaningful walk with Jesus. It's for every follower of Christ, whether you're brand new or you've been doing this for many years. Secondly, even the most talented person in this room cannot, cannot miraculously heal a little girl. This is what you have to understand. It doesn't matter how amazing you, you are. 
how great your skills are. They're welcome here. We need them. But at the end of the day, <laughs> that's not what heals little girls. That's the power of God, right? It's the power of God to heal a little girl. And I've seen him do that recently. At the end of the day, the most talented person in the world cannot make your sister or your father who's far from God and an enemy of the cross come to know Jesus. You can't do it. It doesn't matter how talented you are. That's the power of God working through you. I've seen Jesus do that. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the most talented person in the world cannot heal a marriage where you can't speak to each other. No person has that power, but God can. And what this, is, what this is inviting us to do is to stop believing that our talents can solve our problems, but to start believing that by abiding in Christ, God's gonna solve the challenges in front of us. Now, what do we do with this? I wanna invite you to do with this what God has been doing with me all week. And that is have a little space for repentance. So I'm a pastor, and I hold a position of authority in this church. Okay, I'm a governor of this church, one of them. And, and as I'm studying this, what I'm asking myself is, the, is this all week. How much of the junk of the world have I dragged into my leadership of this church? And the answer is far more than I care to admit. Okay, so all week God's doing this work in me. Rafe, Rafe, are you abiding in Christ? Are you washing their feet? Are you, are you seeing those who the world sees as weak and foolish and are you running to them to give them spots for leadership? This is what God's doing in me. And then Rafe, Rafe, where did you do the opposite? Where did you run to the people that everyone is saying they're, they're the person you should put in leadership and you said, yeah, get them. And, and it's doing something. I gotta confess, all week, I see the remnants of the world still working in me. And it is a joy to have that rooted out.